We are going to be looking this afternoon at Job chapters 11 to 14. Job chapters 11 to 14, and I'm going to begin with the reading of chapter 13, verse 20, through the end of chapter 14. So beginning at Job 13, verse 20. Only two things do not do to me, then I will not hide myself from you. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not the dread of you make me afraid. Then call, and I will answer, or let me speak, then you respond to me. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro, and will you pursue dry stubble? For you write bitter things against me, and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch closely all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten, Man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Look away from him, that he may rest, till, like a hired man, he finishes his day. For there is hope for a tree, if it is cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its tender shoots will not cease, though its roots may grow old in the earth, and its stump may die in the ground. Yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last, and where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise. Till the heavens are no more, they will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. You shall call, and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. For now you number my steps, but do not watch over my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and you cover my iniquity. But as a mountain falls and crumbles away, and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones, and as torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes on. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They are brought low, and he does not perceive it. But his flesh will be in pain over it, and his soul will mourn over it. Let's ask for God's blessing on our study. Almighty God, the great and awesome God, God fearful in ways 
yet unfathomable to us, the God of righteousness and justice, as well as the God of mercy and truth. We come to you and we seek you. We ask for your help in understanding your word. And as we seek that understanding, grant also that we may honor you and glorify your name. For it is to know you that we come to your word, and only by your grace can we achieve that goal. Open our minds by the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, and hear us for his sake. Amen. So as I said, we're going to be beginning with chapter 11, in which we find the first speech of Zophar, the Naamathite, to his friend Job, and we're going to consider also chapters 12, 13, and 14, which constitute Job's answer to Zophar. There's a lot of material there, and so we're going to have to move quite hastily over some sections of these chapters. There are two things that I want to note by way of beginning. First of all, very often the speeches of the friends to Job and also Job's responses to his friends begin with accusations of vain talk. And you can see that in in many different, uh, at the beginnings of many different speeches throughout this. I'm not going to review all those. You can look at them yourself. Just go to the beginnings of the speeches and look at how often this is the case. But you find it again here in chapter 11 with the speech of Zophar. Should not the multitude of words be answered, and should a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? And you find it also in Job's answer to Zophar in chapter 12, a very sarcastic remark. In fact, in 12 verse 2, no doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you, he says. And then also in... uh, Chapter 13, verse 2, he says to them, What you know, I also know, I am not inferior to you. So neither one of them, neither uh, Job uh, is impressed with his friends, nor his friends with Job in their interchanges here about Job's suffering. The second thing we want to note is what I think is a, a significant difference between the talk of Job's friends to him and Job's answers to his friends. Both of them talk about God. And this is characteristic of all the speeches of the friends to Job. They're always talking about God. They're always talking theologically. They're always talking about God's works and ways. And for the most part, they talk truth about God. And when Job responds to them, Job also talks about God, about God's works and ways and so on. But there's one thing that Job does that his friends do not do, and that is that Job also talks to God. They talk about God to Job. Job both talks about God to them and to God himself. And I think that's a very significant difference between them. Job shows a greater, at least, a greater spiritual maturity in that fact than his friends show. And it is because of that greater spiritual maturity also, I think, that Job has a much profounder understanding 
of God's works and ways than they do. So let's begin then very briefly with uh, some comments about Zophar's speech as we find it in chapter 11. As we've already noted, Zophar regards Job's speech as empty, as mocking, and as false. He says to Job in verse 4, You have said my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes. And basically what Zophar is saying, that's a false statement. And Zophar wishes then that God would himself would answer Job. Zophar is answering him, but he thinks rightly that God would be able to answer him more effectively than himself. And he wants God to speak to Job. Though, and this is a qualification we have to understand, he thinks that God will answer Job in the same way that Zophar is answering Job. Zophar thinks he is representing God's truth to Job and that he is taking that truth of God and that he is applying that truth correctly to Job's circumstances. Zophar is also, I think, at least as harsh, perhaps more harsh than Bildad. You remember that in chapter 8, Bildad had said to Job that... uh, Uh, verse 4, chapter 8, verse 4, if your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. And, of course, Job's sons had died. And the implication is, well, your sons must have sinned, and that's why they died. And then he says to Job, if you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you. And Zophar says something very similar, but perhaps even a little bit more harsh than that. Know therefore, the end of verse 6 in chapter 11, that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. You're suffering, suffering greatly. You're not suffering as much as your sin deserves. That's pretty harsh. In verses 7 to 9 then, Zophar describes the incomprehensibility of God's works. And his statement here about the incomprehensibility of God's works is, I think, a very beautiful statement, a statement well worth quoting. In fact, um, when I was in seminary, we had to memorize these verses as proof of the incomprehensibility of God. And I think they're verses that do speak rightly, and beautifully of the incomprehensibility of God. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. And notice how Zophar encompasses in that description of the incomprehensibility of God's works the whole universe. He begins with heaven and goes down to Sheol, beneath the earth, and then he begins again with the earth and extends his view out to the sea. Heaven, earth, the seas, and Sheol itself all come into his consideration, and in all these works of God, in all these places, Zophar says his works are incomprehensible to us. And in verses 10 to 12, then, 
he extends this incomprehensibility of the works of God and the power of his works as well to men. If he passes by, imprisons, and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? He knows deceitful men. He sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? Now, uh, verse 12 is difficult. Uh, The New King James has, For an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. Uh, Other translations have different renderings of those words. But the main idea of Zophar is, I think, however it's translated, that uh, empty-headed man cannot be made wise. God's works, in other words, are incomprehensible works in relation to God. Man is basically empty-headed. It's impossible to give him a complete comprehension, a proper comprehension of God's works. I think that's the point that Zophar is making, and it is a true point. There's nothing wrong with Zophar's theology there in verses uh, 10 to 12, or for that matter, in verses 7 to 12. Or, uh, yeah, 7 to 12. In verses 13 to 19, Zophar promises Job blessing if only he will repent. If you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, If iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear. And he ends his speech with a reminder of God's judgments on the wicked. But the eyes of the wicked will fail and they shall not escape and their hope is loss of life. So he's saying what Um, Bildad had said before him, if you are righteous, God will bless you. If you confess your sins, God will bless you, but he will not bless the wicked. The eyes of the wicked always fail. They will not escape the judgment of God. And this also, as we noticed in connection with Bildad is right as well, is a true statement as far as it goes. God does bless the righteous and he does judge the wicked. The scriptures are full of the testimony of God's righteousness in both of these things. So the problem then with uh, Zophar's speech is not that he speaks error. And the same thing that we had with Bildad. He speaks truth. The problem with Zophar's speech is that his theology is too limited. His understanding of God is limited. He makes the same mistake that Bildad made. And that mistake is that he cannot comprehend a righteousness in God that would send such affliction on Job, on any man, as Job is suffering, if the man is righteous. He cannot imagine a righteous God afflicting a righteous man. And that was basically the message that Bildad had given to Job as well. God has afflicted you, you must have sinned. That's their conclusion. But I think 
that Zophar has less excuse for the limitations of his theology than Bildad, perhaps anyway. And that is because he, as we've already seen, understands the incomprehensibility of God's ways. He had talked to Job about the incomprehensibility of God's ways, and then he proceeds immediately after to explain God's ways to Job and to say to Job, this is what's happening to you. I understand God's ways, even if you don't. And this is, of course, where Job uh, shows his greater spiritual maturity. That's not the error he falls into. His problem is that he cannot explain God, God's ways. Zophar and Bildad are very comfortable that they can explain God's ways, but Job has no idea how to explain God's ways, and that is what troubles him. Uh, in his commentary on this passage, um, Francis Anderson says of Zophar's speech, his censorious chiding shows how little he has sensed Job's hurt. Job's bewilderment and his outbursts are natural. In them we find his humanity and our own. Zophar detaches the words from the man and hears them only as babble and mockery. This is quite unfair. Zophar's wisdom is a bloodless retreat into theory. It is very proper, theologically familiar, and unobjectionable, but it is flat beer compared with Job's seismic sincerity. I think that's a, a telling comment about Zophar's uh, speech here. Zophar misses the point. He speaks truth, but he misses the point. So that brings us then to Job's answer to Job, uh, Zophar, and Job's answer to Zophar has two main parts to it. In chapter, or perhaps three if you like, um, it, it, after the, a brief introduction in which he criticizes the answers which his friends have been giving him, uh, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 12, Job talks about God in verses 6, uh, 12 verse 6, to 13 verse 19. So that whole section from chapter 12 verse 16, Job is talking about God and God's ways. But then in chapter 13 verse 20, Job begins to talk to God. And he continues to talk to God all the way to the end of this speech. So that's the basic division of the speech. Now, a couple of things about then that the introductory words in verses 1 to 5. We've already noted the sarcasm in that first comment of Job. No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But he says, I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? In other words, Job says, I know what you're, you're saying. I understand it. I believe this too. All that you've said about the incomprehensibility of God, yes, that's true. All that you've said about God blessing the righteous and, and judging the wicked, that's true also. I know these things. 
Yeah, you don't have to teach me these things. I, I know them very well. But when you say these things to me in these present circumstances, I am, verse 4, one mocked by his friends. You're mocking me, he says. Who called on God and he answered him, the just and blameless who is ridiculed. You are ridiculing a man whom God has answered. And their ridicule, of course, is the fact that they insist that Job has sinned. Now, verse 5 is a difficult verse. And I don't know that uh, anyone has uh, found a, a good answer to what that verse means. The, the idea of the verse depends partly on the translation of the word lamp the word, the Hebrew word that the New King James renders as lamp. If you look at some of the other translations, you'll see that some of them render that disaster. So a lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease, or a disaster is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. So if, Job, if the word is really lamp, a lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. I think what Job is saying here then is you are people who are at ease and I am not. My feet are ready to slip. And uh, being at ease, you don't really understand the value of a lamp. A man who's at ease doesn't need a lamp. He's resting in his chair or resting in his bed or whatever the case may be and he doesn't care about a lamp. He, a lamp is not important to him. But if, there's a, if a man is outside in the dark and his feet are ready to slip, then a, a lamp is important to him. And what he's saying to his friends then is, uh, you take my suffering so lightly, you take the darkness that has come upon me so lightly that you're not really very much concerned about providing me with a lamp that will really be a guide for my feet. I think that's if the word means lamp. But if it's disaster that he's talking about here, then I think uh, he's uh, referring to the um, words of Zophar and also the words of, of Bildad. He uh, uses the plural form of the uh, second person pronoun in verses 2 and 3. Wisdom will die with you. I have understanding as well as you. That's not singular. That's plural. Um, and if he's, if he's uh, talking then about disaster, then what he means here, I think, is you see the disaster that's come on me and you are ready to uh, despise me and to despise the measure of that disaster that's come on me. But you're not in my position. My feet are ready to slip. And I can't take disaster lightly. I can't treat disaster with contempt. I'm in the middle of it, or disaster is at least just around the corner for me. Complete disaster. Or perhaps he's, he's saying, 
you talk about disaster to the wicked as if it's a, a mere objective truth and has no bearing on anyone except me. You don't care about anything else. But I'm in the middle of disaster, and I care. And I see not only that disaster comes on the wicked, going on to verse 6, but I see that disaster also comes on the righteous and that sometimes the wicked prosper. You see that? So he says a disaster is despised by his friends and they, they despise it because they, they, they don't consider the meaning of the disaster fully. They're not uh, understanding it as they ought. But when a man's in the middle of disaster or when disaster is almost upon him, He's inclined, very much inclined, to take that disaster seriously. And then he begins to think, well, have I sinned? And if he says, I, I haven't sinned, or God has forgiven my sin, then he looks around him and he says, well, what is God doing with the wicked? I see the tents of robbers prospering. I see that those who provoke God are secure. What about me, then? Why am I not as secure as those robbers? And then again, you get, I think, a, um, a statement that's questionable in its interpretation. The interpretation or translation of the statement at the end of verse 6 is, is questionable. Our translation has, in what God provides by his hand, and so the implication is God makes them secure by giving them the provision necessary for such security, but if you look at some of the other translations, you'll see that they say, those who provoke God are secure, whose God is in their hand. Whose God is in their hand. And what he means by that, then, is these are people who are idolaters. Not only are they idolaters, but they're foolish idolaters. They're carrying their God around in their hand because their God can't go around by himself. And they're saying, this is God. And they're open idolaters. They're carrying the God in their hand where everyone can see it. And yet, Job says, God makes even such men secure. Now again, when we get to verses 7 and following, we face immediately a difficulty. And by the way, as, as Job says that in verse 6, that the tents of robbers prosper, he's in, indirectly, anyway, contradicting what Zophar had said in chapter 11, verse 20. The eyes of the wicked will fail, and they shall not escape, and their hope his loss of life, and Job says, well, look around you. The tents of robbers prosper. But, in, again, we face a difficulty in verses 7 to 12, and the difficulty here in verses 7 to 12 is, who really said this? Now, of course, we know that these are words of Job. Job is... is uh, saying these words, but some of the commentators 
suggest that Job is here quoting his friends or putting words in the mouth of his friends. He's really saying to, in verses 7 to 12, this is what you say or this is what you would say. And the other possibility is that this is actually what Job himself says. Now, if it's what Job himself says, then what Job is saying to his friends here is, even the beasts know that God does all things and has all lives in his hands. Now ask the beasts, and they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you, Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain to you, who among all these, that is all these animals, does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. Even he might be referring to the calamities that have come on him. The hand of the Lord has done this. Even the beasts know this, he says, in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. So he's He's saying to them, the beasts know this. The beasts know these things that you've been saying to me. The beasts know the things that I've been saying. The beasts understand that their food comes from God. The beasts understand that the lives of all creatures are in God's hands. So you're not giving me any kind of extraordinary wisdom here. So why does not your ear test words and as simply and easily as a mouth tastes food. Why cannot you grasp this saying that I'm making? Wisdom is with aged men and with length of days understanding. The implication is you're not wise men. You haven't yet achieved the age of wisdom. But I think that the other, trans, uh, the other way of interpreting these words is probably better And the reason, and this is the reason that the commentators give as well, is that the you that we find in these verses is singular. We noted in verses 2 and 3 that Job uses the plural, but here it's a singular you. And you can see this if you look at the King James Version, which always has thee and thou for the singular form, and you or ye for the plural. And you'll see in the King James, verses 2 and 3 have you, and in verses 7 and following, it's thou or thee. Ask now the beasts, and they will teach thee, and the birds of the air, and they will tell thee. So I think that they're probably right when they say, these are. this is Job quoting his friends, or at least saying, this is what you're telling me. You're telling me that this, what you're teaching me, is so simple that even the beasts and the birds understand it. And the plain implication, then, of what you're saying to me is this question, why are you, Job, so stupid that you don't understand what the beasts are say, uh, understand? Why can't you grasp something as simple as what we are trying to say to you? Why does not your ear test words as easily as a mouth tastes food? And you say to me, wisdom is with aged men and with length of days understanding. Remember, Bildad had actually said this to Job 
in chapter 8. He had used pretty much those very words. And Job says, this is what you say. You're teaching me a very simple thing, which even the birds and the beasts understand. But, and there's a big but then in verse 13, I say to you, wisdom is with God. You tell me wisdom is with the birds and the beasts and with you. I tell you, wisdom is with God. And what he does then is he goes on and basically describes not just the wisdom of God, but the incomprehensibility of that wisdom of God. And he says, you think the birds and the beasts understand this. Well, I tell you that the wisdom of God is so deep and incomprehensible that no one understands it. Wisdom is with God alone. It's not with us. With him, our wisdom and strength, he has counsel and understanding. So that's his main point. But notice then how how Job gets to that point. He too talks, just like Zophar did, about the incomprehensibility and power of God. But as he talks about that incomprehensibility and power of God, he talks about especially God's destructive Works. So far, talked in very general terms in verses 7 and 8. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? And he talks about those works being higher than heaven and deeper than Sheol, broader than the earth and the sea. But Job talks about very specific works of God. And the works which he describes are works that are destructive. He breaks things down. He imprisons a man. He withholds waters and they dry up. That is, he creates drought. Or he sends waters and they overwhelm the earth. They they flood the earth and are destructive. (coughs) And no one can undo his works. His works are so powerful. He breaks a thing down and it cannot be rebuilt. He imprisons a man and there's no release for that man. So he's focused on not just particular God's works in general, but on particular works of God, which are destructive. And he says, here's where you have to start asking questions and trying to understand the wisdom of God. It's in these things. And your explanation is, well, if those things come on men, then men have sinned. But I'm telling you, it's not quite that simple. With him... Our strength and prudence, verse 16. The deceived and the deceiver are his. That is, the man who's deceived is under God's sovereign control, and the man who deceives him is under God's sovereign control. God governs all things. Explain that to me, if you will. This is the wisdom of God. He leads counselors away plundered. And notice how in verses 17 and following, he has a long list of the mighty and the powerful of the earth. Counselors, judges in verse 17, kings in verse 18, princes and mighty ones in verse 19, trusted ones and elders in verse 20, and princes and mighty ones again in verse 21. And notice what God is doing with these for the most part. 
He leads counselors away plundered. He makes fools of judges. He loosens the bonds of kings and binds their belt, waist with a belt. That's a somewhat mysterious verse again. Perhaps it means, some have suggested that he releases kings sometimes from captivity and then again he brings them into captivity. I'm not sure what to do with that one. But he leads princes away plundered. He overthrows the mighty. He deprives the trusted ones of speech. He takes away the discernment of the elders. He's taking away exactly those gifts that have brought them to their high position. The elders are ones who have discernment, right? The trusted ones are the ones you go to to get advice. He takes away their speech. The princes are wealthy, but he takes away their wealthy. He overthrows the power of those who are strong, and so on. So God does these things, Job says. Now explain to me what's going on. And then he he takes this and he applies it even further. He uncovers deep things out of darkness and brings the shadow of death to light. He's the one who governs even the darkness and the shadow of death. He makes nations great. He exalts them. And he destroys them as well. He enlarges nations, and then he guides them according to his providence whatever, in whatever way he wants to guide them. He takes away the understanding, these mighty men whom, upon whom he pours his contempt and whom uh, he deprives of their understanding. These are the mighty men who govern these nations. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a pathless wilderness. And he doesn't mean just the chiefs wandering, but the nations themselves. They grope in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. He's saying, consider God's works, if you will. You think this is such a simple matter. Tell you it's not as simple as you want to make it. God does all these destructive things. And that was essentially their message to Job. God had acted acted destructively against Job, and they said, Well, that was God that did that. But they have a very simple explanation, a very simple reason. You've sinned, Job, obviously. And Job says, Look around. Look at his works in creation. Look at his works with men. Are you going to say that all of this is due to sin? It's it's not that simple. So then, moving on to verse 13, or chapter 13, he continues in the same vein there in chapter 13. Behold, my eye has seen all this, my ear has heard and understood it. What I've just been saying, I've seen and understood. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. He goes back to that. I know what you've been telling me, and in general, what you tell me is true. But there's more to it than that. And so he says, I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. You, you, my friends, he says, are forgers of lies, chapter 13, verse 4. You're lying about God because you're misrepresenting his works. 
You're lying about me because you tell me I'm a sinner when I know that I am a righteous man covered in the blood of atonement. And therefore, you are worthless physicians. You cannot heal my hurt because you do not understand God properly and you do not have proper compassion on me in my trouble. So, verse 5, Oh, that you would be silent, and it would be your wisdom. He's basically telling them, I, I don't need to hear from you anymore. It wouldn't be wiser for you to be silent. I want to speak to God. But before he begins to speak to God, he warns his friends about their sin in verses 7 to 12. Will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? They've been contending for God. They've been trying to justify God's ways to Job to explain those ways. And they've been talking very partially for God, which we ought to do, of course, without falling into the error of Job's friends. Will you contend for God? Will it be well with you, then, Job says, when he searches you out? When he comes to examine your words and to get, make you give account for your words, are you going to find yourself in a good position? Will it be well with you, or can you mock him as a man, as one mocks a man? He will surely rebuke you if you secretly show partiality. Will not his excellence make you afraid? He says, you should be afraid. You've misrepresented God to me. Your platitudes are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. And still, he does not begin to talk to God. He continues in verse 13 to 19 to talk to his friends. Hold your peace with me and let me speak. In other words, be, be quiet now. I'm going to talk. And I'm going to talk to God. He's really saying, I'm going to talk to God. That's why I want you to be silent. Then let come on me what may. Why do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? He says, I know this is a very perilous thing for me to talk to God, to address him and to come into his presence with my requests to understand his ways. But though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. And what he means there, I think, is very clear. He says, when I go and talk to God about this, it's possible he will kill me because of what, it, of what I'm doing. It's dangerous for me to take my life in my hands in this way and come to God. But still, even then, I'd rather have my answer from him than from you. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So he's not making a general statement about his confidence in God in God and all God's dealings with him, as we sometimes take it. He's making a very narrowly confined statement. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That is, though he slay me, when I come before him to contend with him, still 
I'd rather have my answer from him than from you. And so I still will defend my own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation. That is, he will provide the answer that I need. For a hypocrite could not come before him. I'm a righteous man. He's the one, therefore, to whom I look for an answer. And then still to his friends. And if you want to stand by and listen while I talk to God, go ahead. Listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. See now, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. Who is he who will contend with me? That is, which one of you would like to try to stop me now? If now I hold my tongue, I perish. He says, I can't be silent anymore. I have to bring this thing to God. It has to go to God. No matter how dangerous it is to me to do so, I have to bring my trouble to God. And it's then in verse 20 that Job begins to talk directly to God. Now, before we begin to look at what Job says there in chapter 13, verse 20, to the end of the chapter 14, there's one thing I think we should note. Job says in verse 19, Who is he who will contend with me? If now I hold my tongue, I will perish. I'm going to talk to God. And it's sort of implied that this is the first time then that he's going to present his case to God. But did we not see in the earlier chapters that Job had been talking to God. In chapter 10, verse 2, we said, Job is addressing God. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress, that you should despise the work of your hands? So isn't he talking to God there? I I think if we pay close attention, we'll see, no, he's not really yet. He's saying, this is what I would like to say to God. I will say to God. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. So he's kind of planning what he's going to say to God in chapter 10. But here in chapter 13, he's saying it. He's finally been pressed to the point that he has to talk to God. He has to contend with God about God's ways with him. Why do you treat me as an enemy is his basic question. In verses 20 and 21, then, Job asks God to do two things for him. The two things he asks are, Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not the dread of you make me afraid. That is, relieve me of this burden of affliction, and relieve me also of the terror that is unmanning me as I come into your presence. Take those two things away from me, and then we can talk. Verse Verses 20 and 21 then go back to 9, chapter 9, verses 34 and 35, where Job said essentially the same thing. 34 and 35 of chapter 9, Let him take his rod away from me, and do not let dread of him terrify me, 
Then I would speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. He talks about the same two things there. But he's talking about them theoretically in his plans. And he's saying, this is what I need there. And here, now he asks those things of God. Take your hand away. Take your terror away. And then we'll be able to talk. Then I'll be able to present a reasonable case before you. Then call, and I will answer. That is, if you want to begin speaking, speak, and I'll respond to you. Or let me speak, if you want it the other way around. And I speak first, let me speak, and you answer me. It doesn't matter to Job how this is going to come out. It's then in verse 23 that he gets to the substance of his speech to God. And the first thing he has to say is how many are my iniquities and sins. Make me know my transgression and my sin. Job has said, I am a righteous man. I have confessed my sins. I have offered the sacrifices required by God. I've offered them in faith. I'm covered with the blood of atonement. Why are you still my enemy? If I've sinned in some way that I don't yet understand, and I've, if I've not confessed my sins, then make me know them. It's very simple. He wants to know his, uh, his sins. The next point that he makes is, why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? And the point which he's making here is not so much that God might be finding some hidden sin in him, but that he views himself as so insignificant that he does not understand why God should even be concerned with him at all. Will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro? And will you pursue dry stubble? I'm, I'm like a leaf tumbling around in the wind. I'm like dry stubble, which fire can consume in a moment. I'm so insignificant that I don't even understand why you're paying attention to me. And yet you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch closely my, all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. I'm just too insignificant, he's saying, for you to regard me as an enemy and to hide your face from me in this manner. And then in verse 28, and in the first verses of chapter 14, he extends this argument to all men. Man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. So then, verse 3, why do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me, returning to the personal, to judgment with yourself? Why should you regard this frail creature, this rotten thing, who's full of trouble, who's like a flower that fades away or like a shadow that flees with the setting sun? <clears throat> Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? And I think what he means is, Man is so rotten and so frail before you that nothing can be made of him anyway. 
He's not worth your attention, and you can't make anything of such a, a, a frail and rotten creature. So why do you do it? His, and then he goes on to say again, this is what you do in spite of this insignificance of man. You determine his days. The number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. He says, not only did you create him, and not only did you sustain his life from day to day, but you determine every day of that life. You determine the number of his months. You've appointed his limits, all the limits of his ways, and all the limits of his mind, and all the limits of his life. You, you've taken all these different things into consideration with this wonderfully insignificant creature. Why? Why do you do this? Look away from him that he may rest till like a hired man he finishes his day. Just don't pay any attention anymore. Remember that we saw Job saying before, leave me alone. Leave me alone. Give me some rest from your eye upon me and your hand upon me. For there, verse 7, there is hope for a tree if it's cut down that, will, that it will sprout again and that its tender shoots will not cease. Its root may grow old in the earth, its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. So that's a tree. Cut it down and you've all seen this, I'm sure. You cut the tree down, for months the tree may be dry, some rain falls, and immediately the tree begins to shoot forth some small branches again. But man, he says, is not like that. Man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last, and where is he? As water disappears from the sea and the river becomes parched and dries up, So man lies down and does not rise. Till the heavens are no more, they will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. So there's hope for a tree. If it's cut down, then it will grow again. But man is not like a tree. Cut him down, he breathes his last, and he's gone. He does not return again till the heavens are no more. So that the thrust then of this argument from really uh, verse 24 all the way through chapter 14 verse 12 is why do you pay attention to such a frail and rotten creature as man? Why don't you just leave him alone? In verse 13 however Job takes a different tack. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your, until your wrath is past. Now here again, you have disagreement among the commentators about what's the significance of this. So um, in one commentary that I have, the comment on this um, passage from 13 to 17 is Job's thought trembles 
on the edge of a hope for resurrection. If only Sheol could be not a final resting place from which there is no exit, but a hiding place from God's scrutiny and consequent wrath, a place of hard service which would one day come to an end, a place from which God would be glad to reclaim a man, having given up scrutiny of any sins he might have committed and having sealed up his transgressions in a bag. He's quoting from all the verses in this section. But the hope is a vain one as far as Job is concerned. If a man dies, will he live again? That's in verse 14. And he says the answer to that is no, or Job's answer to that is no. So he says here basically, Job is, is almost to the point of getting to the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. But he doesn't quite make it. He considers the possibility and he says no. No, it can't be. And so you get behind that, I think, this kind of uh, evolutionary view of Old Testament theology that the people of God in the Old Testament didn't really come to an understanding of the resurrection from the dead until much later in their history. And that Job could not possibly have had such a a hope, therefore, in his own day. Uh, I reject that. I do not think that's possible. Some take these words of Job as very positive, that Job is here expressing hope, and he's kind of overcoming his despair and his hopelessness in this all, and he's looking forward to the resurrection of the dead. At least they're taking uh, uh, as fact that Job is talking about the resurrection from the dead here as as a real thing. But I think... That though Job is talking about the resurrection of the dead as a real thing, he sees it, for himself anyway, as a thing deferred, as a hope which he cannot look to in the moment. So he says, oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath has passed. So he's saying, I'd like to just die now. And if I died now, then I would be at rest from all your afflictions that you bring upon me. And I would be able to look forward to the uh, resurrection from the dead. My flesh would rest in hope, Psalm 16. But he says, you won't even give me that. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past." That you would then appoint me a time, a set time when you would call me before you. You would remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? And Job's answer to that would be, yes, yes, he will. All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes, till that day of resurrection comes. I'll wait for it, he says. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands For now you number my steps, you do not watch over my sins. My transgression is sealed up in a bag and you cover my iniquity. But he's saying, he's saying this is deferred. The only way this is possible for me is if you bring me to the grave now. And Job can't even believe that God will do that for him at this point. Instead, he says, verses 18 and following now to the end of the chapter, 
with your heavy hand and the many afflictions you bring upon me, you grind me away and you grind away my hope as water grinds away the stone of a mountain. But as a mountain fails, falls and crumbles away and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones and as torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. So Job's back in his despair again. You prevail forever against him and he passes on. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor and he does not know it. They are brought low and he does not perceive it. He's in the grave he's, or he's too troubled by the anger of God to understand it or appreciate it. But his flesh will be in pain over it and his soul will mourn over it. Now that figure of the mountain falling away is very interesting. Commentators have noticed the reversal that Job does in here. He talks about a tree being cut down and and sprouting again. And in the scriptures, when you look at considered living things, very often living things are symbols of impermanence, of frailty. Life doesn't last long. But Job here makes the tree a symbol of hope in verses 7 and following. If it's cut down, it will sprout again. And usually in the scriptures, the mountains are a symbol of endurance. And Job here talks about the mountains being worn away, ultimately, by the water. And I think the point that Job is making here when he talks about the impermanence even of a mountain is that sometimes God's Uh, anger, God's enmity against a man wears and wears and wears, but wears very slowly. The mills of God grind slowly. But ultimately, they destroy the hope of man. And Job sees, therefore, Job believes in the resurrection of the dead. But he cannot take hold of it now at this point. He says, if I'm to take hold of it now, then bring me to the grave now, where I can rest from your anger, from your enmity, from all the trouble that you are bringing on me. But I don't see you doing that. I see instead you just grinding away at my hope until there's nothing left. And I have nothing but mourning for my soul. Now, uh, people of God, I think as we look at that word of Job, Job's theology is obviously much more profound and much closer to the truth than that of his friends. He has been at least driven to the knowledge that God's ways with him are not comprehensible are not things he can grasp with his mind. He's not abandoning faith. You see that in his hope of resurrection. He's not abandoning faith, but he wants an answer now. And the only solution to his trouble, for the moment anyway, that he can see is, just kill me. Just let me go to the grave. 
He's expressed that hope before, and he says it again here. Just let me go to the grave to escape from your wrath. But don't continue with me as you have done, because I don't understand. I don't understand why you deal with a righteous man as you deal with me. So he's still deeply troubled, even though his faith has not failed. He's not given up hope of final resurrection, but the hope of final resurrection is not a comfort in the trouble of the moment, in the abandonment, no, in the enmity of God against him. But he's very bold too, isn't he? He says, I want to contend with God. He's like Jacob at Peniel. I will not let you go until you bless me. That's what Job wants. May God bless us with his word.